Hey everybody, CJ here, and let me wish you a hap hap happy Halloween for 2019. Very happy to be back with you. I've not been cranking out too much lately. I've been continuing to deal with some medical issues, and I know I've said this before, but this time I actually believe it, that I've finally started to get things under control. Basically, the short version without too much details is that for about five or six weeks, I've been dealing with two different digestive issues, both of which have been causing me off and on two different types of chronic pain. So sometimes I've been having one sort of pain, sometimes another, sometimes both at the same time, and then little gaps where I don't have pain. And sometimes when I felt good for a day or two, I thought, oh, good, I finally licked this thing, and I'm on the mend, and then it would come back, and it was just driving me insane. And anyone who's had any sort of chronic pain understands just what this can do to you in terms of your mental health, your psychological state, your energy levels, your patience, your ability to concentrate or not. And then it was intermittent. So the chronic pain would go away for a while, but then I had this sort of Damocles hanging over me. And the whole time I'm wondering if and when it's going to come back. So, anyway, this has put a real crimp in my ability to make and produce and crank out DHP episodes, but fingers crossed, after multiple doctor visits and tests and various things, I think I'm finally getting the right combination of food and nutrients and medication and things to get things back on track. So, anyway... Enough about what I've been suffering through for the past five, six weeks. Let's talk about the 2019 DHP Halloween special, which turns out I'm going to break into two parts because it ran so long. So in recent weeks, I've been back in touch, and we hadn't been in touch for a while, with my good internet friend Joshua, who used to run the Dusty Den podcast. Some of you may remember that show. I enjoyed it very much, but it is now no longer, although Joshua is still around. And he had gotten back in touch with me, and we've been emailing back and forth a bit in recent weeks. And basically, I invited him on for a DHP Halloween special, because we're both fans of horror fiction and horror movies. So we had a big, long, rolling conversation addressing each of our top fives and a bunch of honorable mentions in each of the following four categories. So first, top favorite horror films overall. Second, underappreciated or unsung or lesser-known favorite horror films. Third, favorite horror novels. And favorite horror short stories. And the conversation ended up running because, of course, both of us could talk about these sorts of things all day long, given the chance. The conversation ran to Joe Rogan experience length, so ultimately I decided to cut it in half. And so this episode, episode 189, is going to be the two categories covering horror films, and then episode 190, which I'll probably put out a day or two after this one, but still in time, you know, before Halloween hits, is going to cover favorite horror novels and short stories. So, you know, this is not going to be a typical history narrative type of episode, but I usually do something different for Halloween anyway. So if that's all you listen to this show for, feel free to skip this episode if it's not your bag. But if you're at all interested in the spirit of the season 
and or if you are also a fan of horror fiction and film, then you'll probably enjoy this episode. Hopefully you'll get some good suggestions of things to look up and check out that you didn't know about before. And of course, there will be copious links, Amazon links in the show notes to many of the things that we mention. So without further ado, part one of the 2019 DHP Halloween special. Joshua, welcome back onto the Dangerous History Podcast. It has been a very long time, my friend. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's been a been a long time. It's great to finally get to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah. We did a fair number of episodes together a couple years ago or whenever that was. Um, and I'm happy to have you back on for what will be my 2019 Dangerous History Podcast Halloween special. I always do something uh, Halloween-related this time of year. So I know, like me, you are a, a fan of horror films and yes. horror fiction, and you know a lot of stuff about that, maybe even more than I do, and I know a lot about that stuff. So I thought it would be really cool to have you on and just talk about some of our favorite horror films and novels and stories and you know, run through some of our top picks and some of our runners up and all that and I think this is going to be a really good uh, uh, seasonal conversation. It'll go great with any sort of pumpkin spiced whatever that <laughs> anyone might want to sip while listening. And hopefully they'll get some good, some good picks. You know, I'm going to try and get this thing out at least several days before Halloween itself. So hopefully the DHP audience will have an opportunity to benefit from our, our picks and suggestions and so forth. So I'm looking forward to our chat. Me too. I, I could have easily done a top 50 <laughs> in, in at least two of these categories, but probably all three. And, and this, I think um, I sent an email to you commenting on like how brutal this was. It was really deflating when I started whittling down my list. Um, I was like, oh, I, I can't get rid of that, you know, but then I would have to. And it, it was really excruciating would be the word <laughs> that I would pick to describe uh, what it was like eliminating some of the, some of the things that I wanted to include, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. And that's part of the fun is coming up with a, you know, top fives or top tens or whatever. We did top five. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I had asked you, should we do top 10? And you were like, well, then that makes it a heck of a lot of, of things to run through. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, same thing for me, it was excruciating, whittling it down to a top five in each of these categories. And then even once that was done, having to deal with, um, you know, ranking the top five 
that was tough. I mean, I was, I was moving things often on my list and moving things around inside my list. No joke. Yeah, about yeah. 15 minutes before I sent you, um, <laughs> before I sent you the, the link to the zoom meeting, um, today, I was still moving a couple things around on my list going, I don't know, maybe this goes over here. Yeah. So. Yeah. I made a last minute change last night. I was, uh, I, <laughs> I was getting ready to go to bed and I was like, nope, that one just doesn't belong on the top five. It just doesn't belong. So I had, <laughs> I went and, uh, I eliminated it and then brought another one in that was a runner up. So, yeah. And I, I had a few that, um, I, I had it mostly done. I thought yesterday afternoon, and and then, you know, this afternoon, just in the hours beforehand, I was like back into it. And I also had where within just the past few hours, I thought of a few things I had not thought of, you know, a couple. I was like, how did I not think of that movie? You know. So anyway, well, yeah. um, before we launch into it, starting with our sort of top favorite horror films overall. I wanted to ask you in general. When we're looking at horror films, whether it's your top favorites or your favorite um, un- unsung, underappreciated ones, which we'll also uh, talk about, where do your tastes and preferences tend to run in horror films? Like, what what kinds of things really work for you in terms of not not just subgenres, but like, there's so many different approaches to how to make a horror film. There's so many different you know, um, there's the, there's the, the, the more kind of jump scare, there's the more subtle, there's the, you know, lots of blood and gore. There's the more kind of suspense and, and implied things and, you know, less is more and that sort yeah. of thing. So, so what are some of the things that like, if you're looking at your own favorite horror movies, even your top 100, that a lot of them seem to have in common that really kind of are your taste. I would say, and this is not, I don't think a super specific answer, but it's things that make me scared and that, or, or eerie, like make me like give me that eerie feeling hair on the back of my neck, standing up. It's almost like, you know it when you see it or, you know, it when you read it, I'll tell you what doesn't work for me. And I don't necessarily have a problem with it because I don't have a problem with gore at all. Like I, you know, gore is, you know, I love uh nightmare Elm street films and things like that. But, uh, the torture movies, that's a genre uh, with things like um, Hostel and things like this. That doesn't really work for me. Like, I don't get much enjoyment out of watching those. I've seen some of them. Uh, and then there are some that are like supernatural movies that are uh, uh, one that, that I'll just go ahead and say w- would be on my honorable mentions, which is Suspiria. That's all the reason, like, something like that wouldn't make my list is because it doesn't have quite enough narrative structure for me. So I do like a story and uh, that'll go along with one of my number ones. So I won't elaborate on that too much uh, Mm. about why it's number one, but uh, I would say just things that combine elements of mystery with, I like twist endings a lot too. uh, things that really make you think a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, it sounds like a fair amount of overlap with a lot of my preferences. I'm also not a big fan of the, of the sort of torture porn horror me with gore. It's like, I'm not necessarily against it or turned off by it. I do think it's often used as a crutch. Yes. And I do think it's often overused. And, and so, 
So, you know, my default preference is, is less is more with that. Not because I'm, you know, clutching my pearls squeamish or whatever, but I, I just sometimes think it, that it's lazy and it's, and it's a substitute for the things that would make for a better movie, like story and characters and suspense. And I, I really like suspense of one type or another. And I really like movies that are, are good at making an ominous mood more than anything else that, that have that. I I like horror movies mostly with a few exceptions that build kind of slowly. I actually like slow horror movies when they're done. Well, me, I do. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I really like it when a, when a skillful director kind of takes his time and effectively does less is more and through whatever combination of audio and visual is just able to give you that ominous sense of dread from early on that that slowly builds and so a lot of a lot of long shots too i like that in film yeah Um, long shots or or things that aren't perfectly visible all the time i like it when a director or or especially a writer whichever genre we're talking about or or whichever medium rather really can get the most out of your imagination i think that would be a good way to put it Uh, and there's there are some directors that are that are amazing at that and and writers for sure that are are amazing at that and they don't really have to spell it out for you and but they give you just enough to to keep you wondering like and they don't have to explain everything i think sometimes people want an explanation so bad with everything and they, they don't realize maybe part of the reason they like the film or the book so much is because there was some open-ended things, you know, to discover there. Uh, I wish I had an answer for that. I wish I had an answer for that, but really maybe, maybe one of the reasons you enjoyed it so much is because you really don't know the answer. So I like that as well. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree with that. And I kind of feel in a way similar to just sort of, um, jump scares the way I do about gore where it's like it can be effective but it's easy to just use that as a crutch and it's easy to overdo it I mean there are some um, recent horror movies like th- that are like the big mainstream ones that like pretty much all they have is either just you know simple jump scares and then like big CGI you know effects and things like this I'm thinking about uh, stuff like the conjuring and you know that kind of stuff where I feel like a lot of the movies in the seventies and eighties and even in the nineties, when they didn't have the ability to just lean on CGI, they had to be more clever and creative and more indirect and, you know, rely more on, on implied things and that sort of stuff. No, I agree. In fact, a lot of my selections, particularly in uh, film are probably, in that era, which was, I think the goal, like I wouldn't say the golden age, but definitely the modern golden age <laughs> anyway of, uh, you know, of, of horror, horror films or suspense films, any, any way you want to cut it. A lot of my selections though are from all over the place, but there does seem to be like a 1990 ish sort of cutoff. Uh, I'll have to look at like, look at some of the dates to see if there's anything post-1990, but uh, I, I don't believe there is on my list. So. I've got a few more recent ones, but the more recent movies that I really like tend to be the ones that are not the big Hollywood productions that are either indie films or if they're not indie films, they're at least kind of like, you know, not the really the really big ones, you know. Um, they're the ones that, that horror fans will all know, but that the general public 
they have no idea. Their idea is like, what? Ouija too. That's the horror movie genre, you know? <laughs> yeah. I have a couple of those too. So a couple, a couple new ones that I think are, are pretty good, but yeah. Yeah. And one, one more thing that this is, this is something that I really appreciate in the films and in the novels, in the shorter stories, it's, it's less important. Um, if anyone heard that, that was a clock falling off my wall in my office for some reason. I'll fix it later. <laughs> That's random. But um, that I like films with a lot of realism in everything except for, you know, potentially the horror, if it's supernatural in nature or whatever. In other words, I, I like the, the setting and the characters and all that to really be as, as realistic and real feeling as possible. That way, whatever the horror is, if it is something that is supernatural or fantastic, and it doesn't have to be, it can be, you know, like a, like a realistic serial killer or something. But if the horror is something that's, that's, you know, fantastic, supernatural, it really is extra important that your characters and your setting and all that stuff feels plausible and real. Otherwise the whole thing just seems unrealistic and it's hard to be scared of, of something where everything about it just from goofy supernatural things happening to the characters being cruddy to, you know, the setting, not, not quite working. I mean, it seems like the more your horror is going to be abnormal or supernatural, the more important it is for everything else to seem totally plausible and real. Absolutely. And actually uh, we, again, we can talk more about it later as we get into our lists, but that's a a similar point I was going to make with one of my selections is how, uh, especially with film, when a director can make a place or a group of characters seem so authentic and give them such real problems and personalities, and it almost makes you suspend disbelief more. Uh, it's where you're more willing to accept the supernatural or the fantastic, and it, it, it integrates nicely, and it, it makes it more real to you. And I think that's a very psychological truism that it lets your guards down. You know, it lets your senses that you're watching something that's, you know, made up. It it kind of lets you forget that for a minute. You know, there was a great, I forget, I was watching an interview and somebody was talking about the movie Jaws and about how, you know, at the end when I guess it's uh, Roy Schneider's character shoots the oxygen cylinder that's in Jaws's mouth and, you know, Jaws explodes into a million pieces. And they're like, you know, that's ridiculous. If you look, if you just look at that on the face of it, that that's a ridiculous scene that just those physics does not behave that way. Like there's no way you're going to shoot an oxygen cylinder and it's going to blow up a shark. Like it just doesn't work like that. But Spielberg has you so invested in the characters and the tension that you totally forgive that. Like you don't even think that that's unreal when you're watching it. You, it seems totally plausible for the moment uh, until you examine it, you know, just because the rest of everything works so well. And, you know, you have those gritty, real kind of characters that uh, and it's paced very well. And I think Jaws is a good, good example. It's not on my list, uh, but I think it's a it's a really good example of horror done right. You know, so maybe that should be an honorable mention. I didn't write it down to, to make a note of it, but uh, it's definitely one where I think it shows you how good direction, good writing, uh, good performances can allow you to suspend a lot of disbelief. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's do it. Counting up our 
our each of our top fives, and we're going to alternate back and forth each number for just favorite overall best, you know, in in our opinions, uh, horror films of all time. So just like overall favorites. All right. And so, how about you go ahead first and give us your number five? Number five, I have the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the Disney version, uh, which is an animated film, an animated short film. Interesting pick. I like it very much. Yeah, it's it's based on obviously the Washington Irving story from 1820. Uh, Disney released it, I think, in 1949, and. It was originally released with the very brilliant The Wind in the Willows, which is another one of my favorite Disney pieces. And they they packaged it together. It was called The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. I picked it because it is the first childhood memory I have of being truly terrified. I had these VHS cassettes. And people who grew up in our, our era, you know, that's what we watched stuff on was VHS. And I, ha- I was lucky enough to have the, the gold versions. My parents had bought the, the gold versions of these a collection of Disney cartoons. And one of them was called Scary Tales, I think. And it was a bunch of like Halloween themed pieces. Uh, the, the Dancing Skeletons was on there. Uh, one called Trick or Treat with Donald Duck was on there. A bunch of my favorites. Uh, uh, one with a gorilla. Uh, there was I, a, uh, I think I had that exact same tape. Maybe you did. It was, I, I'm it pretty was, sure I did. It was either released in 1977, 1982, or 1983. They released three of the volumes, and one of them was the gold volume. And in the beginning, it told you all about Walt Disney and the creation of the studio and this and that. And it went in a nice sort of biography. And then uh, then you get right into the cartoons. And on the gold edition, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow cartoon was at the very end. And it was so scary to me when I was a kid and I would watch it, but I loved it. I, and I think, I think it's just very special to me because not only is it well done and well animated and, and well told uh, Bing Crosby does the narration and, and the voices of Brom Bones uh, and Ichabod, but it was just it being that final segment in a, a host of cartoons that I loved and grew up with was just sort of like the exclamation point on the season. And I would watch it every Halloween. I would watch it every time. Uh, and I still, uh, last year, I pulled up on YouTube and me and my, my kids watched it and they loved it and thought it was great. That's interesting hearing you, hearing you describe that. Because with you saying that, I'm flashing back to having very similar experiences watching the Sleepy Hollow cartoon and, and all the other stuff you're mentioning. So I, yeah, I really think yeah. I had the exact same tape or, or, or somebody, you know, I knew had it or something. I, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but I can remember being very young and watching all those cartoons. And like you said, Sleepy Hollow at the end. And yeah, it is, it is surprisingly scary for, yes. for what you would think of as just a simple kid's cartoon. Yeah. I think it's because again, it's a bit open-ended. Some of those things that we were already talking about, like you, 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 you can assume that Brom Bones is behind the headless horseman um, or, you can assume not, you know, and like just the way that it's done with the, the sound design, the animation and just the story in general, the legend of sleep. It's just so brilliant. And I know in previous Halloween episode, you, you covered this. I, th- I believe you even read the story. Yeah. Yeah. Th- it's actually the, the short story by Washington Irving is one of my runners up for top, top short stories. So yeah, 
Lots of that's my, that's my number five pick. Uh, it relates to to something else I want to talk about later. So hopefully I can circle back to it. And 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 I'll just preload that as saying, to me, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow is like it's a it's a signifier that Halloween and the season is kind of over, and you're ready to go into like the early the early months of winter. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was because it was the last cartoon in on the uh, the video that I had on the video cassette, uh, but it always had this sort of I don't know how to explain it exactly, but a, a degree of finality to it. It's like a book ending of the season. It is. It is. Uh, yeah. it, it was almost just. I think it was the legend, the fact that it's it's sort of told as a legend, and uh, and it's a ghost story, you know, and that's that's sort of what it's meant to be. It's not in itself supernatural, but it's just a retelling of, of some myth, you know, and uh, that for that reason, it's my number five. I love it. It always takes me back to my childhood and I watch it every year. Yeah. Very cool. I'm, I'm already glad we didn't um, send our lists to each other prior to talking. I'm, I'm enjoying the, uh, the, the surprise. Cause this, this is one that didn't occur to me, but now that I think about it, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a very good pick. Okay, well, my number five is one that might might surprise a lot of people on this list as well, although it's very different. My number five top horror film is The Terminator. Oh, okay. Of course, you know, most people know, 1984, directed by James Cameron, um, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, and uh, what's his name, Johnny Ringo, and uh, Michael <laughs> Bean, right? Michael Bean? Yeah, um, Johnny Ringo. Yeah, that that's one I need to rewatch that I haven't watched in probably about a decade is Tombstone. But anyway, Terminator may surprise people. It'd probably be on a lot of people's lists for like great action movies or great sci-fi movies. And that's how people mostly think of it. They think of it primarily as an action film and a sci-fi film. And if they think a little bit deeper about it, they think, oh, it's it's basically a Messiah story. I mean, the the messiah in this case is named john connor he's got the initials jc it's like you know it's it's very much like like a, a jesus messiah story in a sci-fi setting where the terminator is like the pharaoh trying to kill him you know trying to trying to kill the messiah although in this case with time travel before he's born and all these sorts of things but to me terminator has always been first and foremost a horror film and here's why because i saw it really young it was the first r-rated movie i saw my parents probably wouldn't have let me see it if they had known that i was going to see it i was i was at a neighbor's house who was babysitting me and one of their kids put it on and i sat and watched it and i was probably around five this would have been you know not long after the thing came on vhs and i sat and watched terminator and I was terrified. <laughs> and and if you think about it, in many ways, The Terminator is like a movie, a horror movie slasher, because, you know, he's a cyborg and he uses guns a lot of the time. But other than that, he's a very similar archetypal sort of a thing as someone like Michael Myers. Yeah. His his origin is different. His nature is different. But like in broad brush terms, he's this soulless, pitiless remorseless seemingly unstoppable dark stranger yeah and and then there's elements of gore too like when he starts to get mutilated and like pokes his own eye out and whatever and so anyway around age five this is the first 
film that I can vividly remember to this day. And I don't have very many memories clear from that early in my life. This is, this is one I can remember, the earliest film I can remember being like genuinely scared and disturbed and like it resonating with me for days afterward where I was like, you know, mildly traumatized was, <laughs> was the Terminator. So, so I say it's also a horror film. Yeah, I, I think that's brilliant. I, and it's interesting that we both picked something that had a childhood impact for our our initial entries. Uh, it's so funny how like those, those memories and those experiences, particularly, I, and I would say particularly in the genre of horror, uh, stick with you forever. I think John Carpenter had said in an interview, the first story ever told was probably a ghost story, mm-hmm. uh, which is true. Like it's being scared and, and terrified is just, you know, it's part of the, the human condition. And that what you're saying about the Terminator is, is an often used trope. The Terminator, you know, himself is just that on the unstoppable force, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, what shape like Michael Myers. Yeah. The shape Um, it's, you know, or the zombie or, or or whatever it happens to be or or the nothing. If you want to go into something fantastic, like the never ending story, it's, there's whenever you're dealing, whenever your protagonists are dealing with uh, the unstoppable force, always more scary, right? It's, 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 that's a really interesting pick. Uh, I would not have, I would not have selected that, but now that you, you say it, yeah, I guess, I guess it is a horror film. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, you know, if you're dealing with like a, a human killer, no matter how dangerous or scary they are, it's like, all right, if you can shoot them well with a sufficiently powerful gun, it is done. Whereas the Terminator, they shoot the shit out of them uh, and it just kind of mildly slows them down a little bit. And that's about it, you know? So, um, and, and it's more plausible because he's a cyborg. Whereas, you know, with Michael Myers, you're just kind of left wondering like, what is he really, which, you know, is, is its own, its own thing, I guess. But, (laughs) but, but there is something about it being almost like scientifically more plausible that, that this thing is unstoppable. So anyway, you're number four. All right, my number four, we're going in a totally different direction. This was something that I saw as a teenager that really scared me and stuck with me. Uh, and it's completely, completely different than sort of my playful number five pick. So I'm going with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1974 uh, by Toby Hooper, who also did uh, one of my honorable mentions, which would be Poltergeist. He did that with Steven Spielberg. But uh, I picked the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because I think that's his best piece, uh, especially as an auteur where he had a, a pretty much, you know, ran the whole show. It was really interesting to me because when I first saw it, it was, I didn't, I didn't know a lot about film at the time and I was just starting to get into scary movies and I thought it was going to be kind of silly in a way I was like, I thought it was going to be like almost, I don't want to say slapstickish, but just kind of dumb. And then when I watched it, it has, it has like this grainy film quality. Uh, it, lo- it looks almost like a documentary. I mean, it looks so real. Yeah. Yeah. It, it almost anticipates all those, you know, found yes. footage. Horror in films. the beginning, there's this creepy narration in the beginning where they're talking about how like it's, it's a true story and all, and all this stuff. I mean, it's very loosely, kind of based on Ed Gein, uh, who was a real life serial killer and grave robber. But, uh, you know, as were other 
films and, and books and things like this, that some of which we might get into later. So I don't want to go into those, but uh, it was like banned in a lot of places when it first came out. It caused all kinds of, pro- of problems. And I think it was shot for $140,000, which I think today would be something like seven or 800,000. But it, it was really ahead of its time as far as uh, using a really small budget and just with a good idea, you could really accomplish something and you could go make something uh, for a group of um, you know young actors and director, uh, Toby Hooper, could go make something that stands the test of time. And I think a lot of it is to do with the performances, you know, Toby Hooper's eye for what to show and what not to show. Like a lot of people think that it's a really gory film. And the first one is not. There is not a whole lot of blood shown. There's the, I was watching an interview uh, with Toby Hooper. I think the interview was from the masters of horror series. And he talks about how like, yeah, the, the blood is, he gets it out of your mind. You know, obviously there's the scene, the scene he references is where uh, Leatherface uh, takes, takes the girl and puts her on the, the meat hook. And he's like, yeah, I pan down to a big bucket, you know, and you know, obviously know the buckets there to, to catch, catch the blood and stuff, but I don't show the blood, you know? So, and then after several rewatchings of, of the film, I realized, yeah, there, there's not a lot of blood in it at all. Uh, there's not a lot of gore. It's all, but I had to like rewatch it to realize that because of how artful it was done. And it just, it really scared me. It was one that the first, like based on a true story, kind of, even though that's definitely a very far, far cry, a lot of rationalization there, but that made me think like, oh, this could, this could happen. It's very believable and and it could. And I guess that's the scary thing is none of the characters are supernatural. They're just crazy weirdos. You know, so, and it has the unsuspecting characters, you know, just the teenagers who are out a lot of the, you know, the, the tropes that you run into in slasher films, but I, this was an early entry in the slasher genre. And, and I think it's one of the best. So number four, it definitely scared me when I was a teenager, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. I, I like that one too. It's not in my, in my top list. It would definitely be on like a longer list for me, like, like 20 or 25 or something. Um, I think I didn't actually see that one until I was a little bit older. And so it probably, you know, some of this, like you said before, has to do with like when you encounter certain things and, you know, something like if I encountered Terminator when I was 25, it probably wouldn't have felt as terrifying. I would have just been like, wow, this is a cool action movie, you know? Um, And so, yeah, I think if I had, if I had actually seen Texas Chainsaw, the original, a little bit younger than I did, it might have impacted me a bit more. But definitely, I agree that you know the it is very good, and it, along with some movies that are, that are on my lists or on my runners up, are um, similar in in regard of shot on a shoestring and kind of guerrilla filmmaking. And you know, when you've got a skilled filmmaker, that can yeah. really bring out some. And it's different for anyone who hasn't seen it that's listening. It's completely different than any of the other any of the other entries into the series. So don't go uh Netflix Texas Chainsaw Massacre three and think that it is anything remotely like the the original. It is completely it's a standalone piece. The other ones are just sort of spoofs almost. Uh they're they're kind of ridiculous. Uh to where this one yeah. has what has a more serious, sinister tone. Uh it isn't about the gore or anything like that. It's more about a scary story. 
Yeah, yeah, it definitely does a good job with the ominous mood that I'm always a big fan of. Well, my number four is is one you mentioned earlier. It is Jaws, yes. 1975, directed by Senor <laughs> Spielberg. The sophomore effort. Yeah. This is, again, we're back to childhood. This is the second movie I can remember seeing that really made me viscerally afraid. The first being Terminator. And even though Jaws is an older film, I didn't see it until probably a year or two after I saw Terminator. So this is the second one I can really clearly remember that like gave me a lasting little bit of trauma. And, you know, it's, it's so well done in terms of you don't really see the shark for most of the movie till near the end. And a lot of that was the luck that the, that the robot shark malfunctioned so much that Spielberg had to imply things. Uh, with with his filmmaking and that actually makes for a much more suspenseful movie and the fact that while certain aspects of the shark and how they kill it and the things the shark does are obviously exaggerated and not realistic but the idea that you know a big shark could potentially eat you is something that does happen it's not statistically super common but it does happen so there's a plausibility there that like you know um, a, a gargoyle eating you or who knows what is, is, you know, not the same like feeling of, Hey, this is actually kind of possible, um, which makes jaws all the more scary. And, and, you know, they didn't make the shark behave as cartoonishly stupidly ridiculous as uh, a lot of later shark movies that go nuts with the special effects and the sharks yeah. are practically like able to fly. I think it still looks great. I think the shark still looks good. Like it's not, it's obviously you have to realize you're dealing with what year was it? Do you know, do you remember? It's uh, obviously they're dealing with 1975 technology, but it's still effective for me. Yeah. I, I I think it's great. Yeah. The, the one thing is the, the jaw itself you can tell is, is mechanical when the shark sticks his head out of the water and, you know, chews on something. Um, You can sort of see the joint there for the jaw. But other than that, it does at least look more realistic than a CGI shark. You know, those, those practical effects for all their flaws are oftentimes still less fake looking than the damn CGI that everybody I um, know. abuses. I agree. Days. And, and, and Jaws is another one of these, you know, that, that you combine the, the less is more filmmaking with, of course, the iconic John Williams soundtrack that just immediately, you know what it is and it's terrifying. And for me in particular that I, I saw it still relatively young, probably six or seven the first time. And I grew up in Florida, so guess what? I'm in and around the water all the time from the time I'm a toddler. So it's one where, you know, if you live nowhere near the ocean and you're not in the water much or whatever, maybe Jaws won't put the fear in you as much as someone who is growing up constantly in and around the water. So that's another reason it just really extra kind of yeah, punched pl- me in the and It is a movie that literally kind of changed everyone's behavior about going in the water for a, for a long time. Like it actually had a appreciable effect on how much people were scared of going into the ocean for a while. So that's, that's pretty interesting. I, I had a friend years ago uh, named Natalie. She used to live here. Now she lives in California and there's a, a quarry or something out there in California uh, where people will go and there's actually like a, it's like almost like a drive-in at a quarry, which it sounds awesome. Like I would love to do that. And there, they will show jaws sometimes and other, you know, creature from the black lagoon and things like this uh, that have to do with water as the setting. 
and they'll show and people are sitting there in their rafts or, or whatever, you know, watching this stuff. So that has to be kind of a cool experience. But no, I love Jaws. It was his uh, Spielberg's second movie. He did Duel uh, before that, which just as a little side note, was written by Richard Matheson, who makes a couple a couple appearances for right. me later on. So uh, I will shout out to one of my favorite yeah. authors, Richard Matheson, who inspired Spielberg and then yeah. a, lot, a bunch of other people. But uh, yeah, it was, it was very early in his career, and it's still one of his most brilliant films, I think. Yeah, that's that's one I haven't seen in a long time that we could probably use a rewatch. Yeah, and and by the way, for, before we move off from Jaws, just real quick, I can tell you that there were a few times where I had an uneasy feeling while in a swimming pool <laughs> after seeing Jaws. Like, no joke. I'd be in a swimming pool, and my, my mind knows, like, there is not going to be a shark in the swimming pool. And yet, my, my subconscious reptilian brain still is, like, hearing yeah, the, the theme the music and, and feeling just that, yeah, just that, that, that uneasy <laughs> sort of feeling. Like, especially when, you, when you're not, you know, yeah. you're in the deep end. It's going to bust, through the, so bust through the foundation of the pool. <laughs> it, yeah yeah he's gonna i don't know he's gonna shrink yeah. and then come in through the pipes and you know um yeah i mean that to me that that's that's proof of an effective film that that you can be scared yeah. in a swimming pool after you see it so um all right your number, number three, three is probably one of the most known and classic horror films of all time which is night of the living dead 1968 george romero excellent pick i will say right now no joke it's my number three. Too. So we can just talk about this one together. <laughs> we can go back and forth on it. I'll tell you some of the things that I love about it. And then you can tell me uh, what you love about it so much. I love that it's in black and white. Uh, I think it makes it more effective than the remake, which is also good done by Tom Savini, who was a special effects guy for, for Romero for years for all the other zombie films uh, that he did. Um, and, and he was uh, Tom Savini was actually, if people have seen Dawn of the dead, uh, he was, I forget his name in that, but he was the guy who had like the, the pants on that full and the crotch folded down into like a gun to shoot the, the vampires. So like that, that's, right, Tom right. uh, but anyway, he, he's great. But the original one, uh, from 1968 was done for like a hundred thousand dollars or something like that, something in the neighborhood there. And it's just another example of something that was done cheaply that, changed movies it literally changed the genre it was he created an entire type of monster basically in 1968 that people are still replicating today and you look at the walking dead you look at all these other films he really is the one who created the rules around this particular monster and there are so many political and philosophical symbolic things that can go into what it's really about. Uh, it's, it's one of these things that's a horror movie that just says a little bit more. It has, it starred Dwayne Jones who, who stars as Ben, which is the, the main protagonist of the film. And really this was one of the first times an African-American actor was put as a leading role. Uh, and it was done in a little horror film, you know, that was shot outside of Pennsylvania, not for some big studio. And it just doesn't get enough love for stuff like that, uh, as this genre is often dismissed. Uh, but it does some some pretty important things, and that's that's one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I love all those things about it, um, definitely. And it's 
the first, and in my mind, still the best of kind of the modern zombie films. And it, I think it still stands up pretty well. Like it's, it's still a creepy, scary the sound design is great in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I appreciate it even more now that I know more about how it was made and all that sort of stuff. And, um, I actually mentioned it in my presentation at pork fest, like three years ago as an example of, a, of applying guerrilla principles to something other than war. And, and I mentioned there, and I'll mention here, anybody who's a fan of this movie, who's not already, go watch the documentary Birth of the Living Dead. That is yeah, a documentary awesome. film yeah. about the making of Night of the Living Dead. It is excellent. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, last time I checked, it's on Amazon Prime streaming, if you have that. And you'll, you'll get a whole new level of appreciation for this film. Um, if you watch that documentary, it's just amazing what they were able to do. Classic case of someone with very few yeah. resources. It was also, being extremely resourceful. again, because it just ties into Jaws, what we were talking about before, uh, very much inspired by Am, I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. Again, the uh, same, same author. In fact, I, I have watched an interview with Romero before where he was like, I just ripped off a lot of, a lot of what Richard Matheson was doing, you know, he's like, and, but he still, it's still enough of his own uh, to where, uh, as as John Carpenter has put it before, he, he created this whole world, you know, which he did. And I think it's it's a masterpiece still today and probably of the entire series, I, I would say Dawn of the Dead being a close second, still it's the very best one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely my favorite in all those. All right, so... Let's see if we have another one where we both happen to pick the same one for the same number. Uh, my number two pick is, I'm going to say, if if you put a gun to my head and said, what's your favorite film of all time? Uh, I would probably pick this one. Uh, and that's going to be the 1979 Alien by Ridley Scott. So there's a lot of reasons why it's my favorite movie. In fact, a while back, I did an entire podcast on just Alien. So, but I'll... I'll I think it's got a lot of the things that we've already talked about. It's a horror movie similar to how you saw Terminator. It's just, it's a horror movie that's in space. You know, it's, it's, I guess the, the, the classic thing said about it is it's a haunted house movie in space. You know, there's a, this monster that's on the loose terrorizing these people. And the setting is just this claustrophobic spaceship. And, it's got all the elements of a great, great horror film. It's got some jump scares, but it doesn't abuse the technique. It's got a great monster in the alien that again has gone on to be in numerous sequels and spinoffs and everything else. A phenomenal cast, including Tom Skerritt, Sigourney Weaver, you know, just a, a bunch of Ridley Scott is an amazing director. And it was written by Dan O'Bannon. Dan O'Bannon is a name that comes up a lot. When you're talking about a lot of the, especially once we get into talking about short stories and, and adaptations and, and films, he, he's a writer. He did a lot of work on different films and he was actually a good friend of John Carpenter's. They went to film school together at USC and they actually worked on their first student film, which became their first real film after they got some financing called Dark Star. And that was actually the, as O'Bannon puts it, the germ for Alien. Alien, the, if you, if you get the special DVD collector's series has one of the best behind the scenes. I think it's called the beast within or something. It's got one of the best making of 
uh, that I've ever seen. And uh, I really like it. I think it's a good example of like how sometimes Hollywood or whatever catches lightning in a bottle because you, you had a great writer in O'Bannon. You had a great director in Ridley Scott, who's, who's very much an auteur, but does allow other people's input. You had O'Bannon brought all these. He had been working on Dune, uh, a version of Dune, which never got made. And he met H.R. Uh, Geiger, who did the Alien, and, and uh, a bunch of other artists who ca- all came together. He got sort of like this dream team of artists to work together, uh, and they each designed a different aspect of it. So he had one artist designing the Alien, who was Geiger, and another artist designing the spaceship, and another artist. Is- so there, you- all these elements are coming from different brains. So that's why like the alien and the alien planet and the alien ship feel so distinct from the rest of the film because they were worked on by different people, by different artists and use in doing that and using that technique really makes them seem otherworldly. Uh, but it, it was, it's scary and it, the characters are great. I could go on and on and on about it. I love it. It'll always be one of my favorites, but there you go. Alien. Good pick. I'm definitely a fan. Um, it wouldn't quite make my top five, but it's definitely on my list of, of runners up. And another thing that it does so well is, and I think you probably mentioned this uh, in the podcast you did on it way, 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 way back when, which I did listen to at the time. One of the things that makes Aliens so effective is that the, the crew and their, their personalities and their banter and kind of just the look and feel of their spaceship. And it, it has a very authentic feel, even though it's this, yeah. you know, sci-fi thing. You, you have this feeling of like, oh, these are, these are believable blue collar characters who are kind of like the space equivalent of truckers. Yes. And, and all of that, that feeling of realness in the characters and even in like the appearance of their ship, you know, that it's kind of beat up and dingy and whatever, again, makes it so much more easy to, uh, you know, by the, the the fantastical alien and and all of that. So yeah, it's very effective. I think the guy who worked on the ship, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think his name is Ron Cobb. I'm almost positive. Yeah, it was Ron Cobb, Chris Foss, and H.R. Geiger. And Chris Foss did a lot of the uh, more fantastical elements of like the design of you know the actual atmosphere of space and everything. But but Chris Foss is an artist and he did a lot of the ship and when he was doing it, he, he has like an engineer's mind and he, he does, he designed a lot of these things like they would actually work. He had this whole, uh, and I'll quote him, uh, space would be at a premium, you know, on a spaceship like this. So, you know, he talked a lot about how when he was doing the art design, he wanted to really capture that sensibility of, I want this to work. And the set, when they created the set, they built a spaceship. <laughs> like basically they, they got all these different parts from the studio and from junkyards and everything else. And they built it and painted it. And the actual set was like, you were going into uh, this spaceship, at least on the inside. And it, they actually had to film in a very claustrophobic type of atmosphere. And it definitely had an impact on, on the actors and uh, on, on the filmmaking in general, the lighting uh, very, very sparsely lit. And it, it's just great. I think for all those reasons, it, it's a great example of when all those things sort of come together to make, to make something that ends up standing the test of time. And it is by far, I think, 
the best in, in the series of all any of the series. Oh yeah. Or anything yeah. Like that. Yeah. No question. And it does, it does age. Well, it does stand up precisely for the reason you were saying, cause these are all practical effects. These are real built sets. And so everything looks and feels real. Whereas if they yeah. made it today, they'd probably just CGI every damn thing and it would not feel as real. Yeah. When they did that, the egg burst, uh, the face hugger scene where the egg opens and boom out shoots the, uh, the, the face hugger that attaches to one of the, the astronauts. Uh, they actually, I mean, they used, I think they used like sheep intestine or something like that. Uh, and some, like some seafood stuff or something like that, uh, shot with an air cannon and then they had to slow it down. And one of the things Ridley Scott was saying uh, in that behind the scenes footage, he was like, you can't get any, any better than the real thing. You know, in, in, in essence, that's what they're using there. They're using visceral, actual material. Uh, nothing like that, that, that holds up forever. Yeah. You know, that's just looking, looking at an actor's face or, or a physical human being. Yeah. So I think that's why it's so good. Yep. Okay. My number two is one that most people have probably seen. The Exorcist, 1973, William Friedkin, Ugh. based on the novel by William Peter Blatty. And in my mind, it is the best of the demonic possession films. It's really, as far as I know, the first of, of the big modern ones to have that be sort of the main theme. And I think it is the best of those sorts of films because of, well, a number of things, you know, obviously the, the actors, the performances, the directing, all that, but the, the sound, the iconic soundtrack and that sense of realism you get, you, it does a great job slowly building things and making it feel plausible and the world feels real and all that sort of thing and uses a few jump scares, but mostly relies on atmosphere slowly, ominously building and just a, a, a great film in terms of mood and all that and and it, it, it yeah. it's just it's yeah. just the most plausible of these sort of possession subgenre movies. Yeah, and I also think that of all those kind of movies, it definitely personifies like the good versus evil the best. Like that's ultimately it's a good versus evil film. And it's extremely scary. That this is one that's difficult for me to watch. Like uh, I all like I have trouble with this one just because it is so creepy and it is it does come from such a uh, kind of a real place, you know, and uh, it's it's definitely definitely a very scary pick. Great number two. So what is your number one? All right. I don't know if we have the same number one. I I think we might because you haven't mentioned it yet, but maybe not. Maybe not. So. Uh, I know we both have this this one director <laughs> that we both very ad much admire, but I'm going with uh, Halloween 1978, John Carpenter. I strongly concur. <laughs> I thought, I was like, man, he better not sneak escape from New York. That's not horror. He cannot do this. So uh, at least we both have Halloween on here. Uh, produced by the great Deborah Hill. She's prolific in her own right. Starring Jamie Lee Curtis, obviously, who, you know, most people know, I guess, the daughter of Janet Lee, who was famous for Psycho, uh, and the great Donald Pleasance, uh, who reprises his role in all the sequels. But it's really about this first one, Halloween. It is the king of slasher movies, 
the king of indie films held numerous records for a long time of, uh, you know, money made versus money spent. Uh, it did, it did phenomenally in, in that regard, made a name for John Carpenter. It was his first big film. Uh, John Carpenter, in my mind, is the ultimate auteur. I don't think he gets nearly enough credit. And I will say he was one of the first people who started uh, putting his name. He 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 was smart enough, you know, to include his name as part of the title in his films uh, to let you know, hey, this is my creation. He I, he's very much an auteur. Uh, you would see it with Alfred Hitchcock before. And maybe if you go way back, David O. Selznick was probably, you know, who did the 10 commandments and big epics like this was probably one of the only people doing it, but he brought that sensibility of like, Hey, this is the director's film. And I, again, I could go on and on about John Carpenter. I love virtually all of his films. Escape from New York is one of my favorite where I'm going to talk about him more later. So, so, um, but yeah, great movie. I want to know what you have to say about it. Yeah, well, I already said a bunch about it back when I did my um, DHP Heroes John Carpenter stuff uh, about a year ago. So any listeners who haven't heard that can go check that out for much more just of my my take on John Carpenter plus, um, you know, sort of a biographical narrative of his career. It is actually probably not my number one top favorite John Carpenter movie, but it's my number one top favorite John Carpenter movie that's first and foremost a horror movie. And it, yeah. obviously it is my, my top favorite horror movie. And yeah, I mean, it, I think it's, it's the ultimate slasher film. All others are inferior to one degree or another. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, it is a classic case of less is more and minimalism and using suspense and, and uh, implying things and not just relying on just jump scares or just gore or whatever as a, as a shortcut or a crutch. And like Texas Chainsaw, it's surprisingly bloodless, given yeah. given sort of how people normally think of it. And like Night of the Living Dead, and like some others we've mentioned, it's again, you know, wonderful case of of uh, shoestring budget being used effectively to make something that's better than most big budget films, one of the most profitable films of all time. And and it makes my list, especially since we're talking about this less than a week before Halloween. Exactly. Because not only is it a great horror movie, but it's a great seasonal film, even though it was shot, I think, during the summer in California. And it's supposed to be, you know, in Ohio in the autumn. But nonetheless, they, you know, if you really look at the background, you can you can catch this, but you you can catch that it's not really autumn in the north. But um, they had to spread dead leaves around for some of the shots. Yeah, they were like, and they said it was a pain in the ass, like going to clean them up for each take and then drop them again. Yeah, they had to recycle them. Yeah, they were keeping like garbage bags full of dead leaves. (laughs) But but despite all that, it still just gives you this this Halloween feel. And like so many of my favorites, it is great at slowly building an ominous atmosphere and just ratcheting it up. Oh, the payoff at the end is amazing. Like the showdown between Michael Myers and Jamie Lee Curtis is uh, just so good. It's worth, it's the payoff, you know, it's what you're waiting the whole film for. There's a lot of long shots um, that he sets up to where like, you're like, you're not quite sure. Is he in the background? Is he not in the background? Or you're seeing it from the character's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And like you said, it's, it's the ultimate slasher flick. Um, It is the best and it doesn't rely on uh like cheap 
too many cheap jump scares or anything like that. It's just really, really well done. Yeah, expertly shot too. You know, all those times where like Michael Myers is off in the background out of focus and, you know, those sorts of those sorts of yeah. shots where it's just it's just perfect. For, for yeah. what it is, it is it is a perfect film. And, you know, you're talking, he's the writer, director, sound design, did the soundtrack. Like, so uh, it is truly his film. Yeah. And I'll say this, and I said it back when I did my John Carpenter episodes. I really, really would love to see Carpenter crank out one more really good film with him <laughs> as, the, as the auteur, um, because he really... He hasn't done anything in a long time and his last few films have not have either been bad or at least just, you know, not great. And, yeah. and I, I think that's really a shame because because when he's good, he's really good. Yeah. When he's on, it's 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, hopefully we'll talk about more later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's <laughs> he's getting on in years and, you know, he's I know he's been a chain smoker almost his whole life. So, yeah, I'm, I'm like, come on, man, you don't have much time. Make one more awesome <laughs> film, like shoot yourself up with whatever, you know feel good stuff you need to, to you know, B12 and, and amphetamines or whatever it is you need to go out there and crank out one more brilliant film. Yeah. And a lot of his, a lot of his great ones aren't horror films. Like we've already escaped from New York, you know, um, watch, well, I'm not going to go into all of them. Yeah. But big like trouble in little China. Yeah. Yeah. He's just, he's really good. I think I'm not sure. No, it was Jeff Bridges who won an Academy award for star man. Um, I don't think uh, Carpenter did, but uh, even so, even like a love story he's done, you know, which is what that really was. But, uh, you know, very, very interesting, very interesting guy. Um, a lot of libertarian sensibilities. Uh, very, very likable character. Every interview that's like on YouTube or whatever that I can find with him, it's always interesting just to hear him talk. So, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed um, the the research I did for those episodes, I, I read, you know, multiple biographies and things and then watched a whole bunch of interviews and a whole bunch of, you know, making ofs of his various films and, and things like that. And, and it was, it was a lot of fun uh, just working on those because, you know, I already knew a fair about him and his career, but to really dive deep. All right. Well, I, I guess we ought to just sort of sprint through our runners up so that we can yeah, we can move fine. on to the next category. So just um, I'll just bang through mine fairly quick, maybe say a thing or two about a few of them, but most of them I'll just list. Uh, and these are in no particular order. I didn't rank my runners up or organize them by date or anything. So um, Alien, which you already mentioned, that's a runner up. Okay. Uh, the Changeling, 1980, starring George C. Scott, is a very good uh, kind of yes, I love that movie. story. Yeah, a ghost haunting sort of a story. Very good. Uh, the others with Nicole Kidman, 2001, um, is another one I like once, you know, the twist ending, it's a little bit less scary, but the first time you watch that movie, I think it is very, very good. Yeah. The fog, John Carpenter, 1980, not the 2005 remake, the original more recent one, the woman in black 2012, uh, starring Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter. Okay. Very effective. A suspenseful, haunting sort of a movie um, that I, I would highly recommend. Seven, 1995, directed by David Fincher. Ooh, yeah, who, that's great. Great movie. Yeah, Fincher is awesome whenever he's dealing with serial killers. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, any of his movies and also Mindhunter are on Netflix, the series. Um, he did Zodiac, right? Did he do Zodiac? Yes. And that, okay. I'll, I'll spoil it, is one of my honorable mentions for underappreciated 
uh, oh, okay. films. So yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. Of, there's a, there's a few things he done he's done that I'm not a fan of, but when he's dealing with serial killers, he's just awesome at it. Yeah. Um, and then on my honorable mentions, the original Wicker Man, 1973. Oh, very 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 awesome movie. Yeah, Ed, yeah, Edward Woodward and Christopher Lee, not the horrible Nicolas Cage remake. <laughs> Another one, much more recent, It Follows, 2014. Mm-hmm. That one almost made my top five list. Honestly, it does. I think a very effective job with all the things I like ominous mood realism that then makes you buy the supernatural element. And, and it's one of the few movies I've seen say made in the last five years or so that like really, really had an impact on me and really, you know, struck me as a powerful horror movie. Uh, and then a few anthology films. I love anthology horror films, and none of them I don't think are, are quite good enough to make my top five, but just a few anthology horror films I'm a big fan of that I'll mention briefly, and then I'll turn it over to you. Creepshow, Creepshow 2, uh, Trick or Treat, which is one from 2007, and Tales of Halloween, which is from 2015. Those wow. are um, Those are a few anthology films which are pretty good. There's been some bad anthology films. I don't love them all, but, but a, a good anthology film I usually like, you know, where you got these little 15-minute segments. Oh, and also um, in that vein, the, the Twilight Zone film from the 80s. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good uh, with Jonathan Lithgow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that, yeah, that's good. And that was a uh, collaboration. There was a you know, few, few different directors that worked, worked on that. A lot, a um, lot of anthology films will be that way, where they'll, yeah. they'll have a different director for each segment. Um, I think Creepshow as well was like that. Yeah, and that's – I can't remember if Trick or Treat was that way or not, but it definitely is the case with Tales of Halloween. Anyway, um, do you want to run through your runners-up? I do. So my runners-up for ones that I would you know, consider putting in the top – uh, but they just didn't quite make the cut. Uh, obviously, Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm a Wes Craven fan. Uh, the original one, I think, is really good. Uh, the original, uh, I'd say the Bela Lugosi Dracula film, I think, is really good. Um, it's It's got that creepy sort of atmosphere. It's very, very old. Uh, a movie called Alice Sweet Alice, which is a very early kind of precursor to the slasher film. It's also like a psychological thriller. Uh, Suspiria, um, as far as modern films, The Descent, which is about a group of girls who go cave diving, go like spelunking. Yeah, that one's pretty good. I remember that one. Yeah, that's pretty, very claustrophobic feeling. And then there's another one called Oculus. It's pretty good, which is about a a haunted mirror. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I had forgotten about that one. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, It's pretty good. Um, So those, those weren't quite good enough to make it onto the list. I already mentioned, uh, uh, poltergeist but those would be those will probably be ones that were were really close and i will give just a quick another quick honorable mention to halloween three it's the only halloween that isn't in the michael so when they did halloween they were originally going to take it as an anthology series which they very well should have instead of doing like michael meyer sequels halloween three was the first one that did something different and uh it's it's a really weird movie. It's very eerie and creepy, and it has androids in it, which creep me out. Like I don't like human looking androids like that. Um, pr- maybe part of the reason why why I think Alien's so great is because the Ash character. Uh, but that that's something that's always scared me. 
as something that looks human that isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so Halloween three definitely was really close to being on one of my lists. So I, I think that that's a good, good entry into the franchise because it doesn't have anything to do with Michael Myers. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's pretty good. All right. Well, um, now underappreciated or unsung or lesser known favorite horror films. And the ones I've got, probably most of them are ones that horror fans will know. So they're not ones that are so esoteric that, that, you know, a reasonable horror film fan is going to not have a clue. There might be one or two that, that might, you know, be unknown to, to horror fans, but, um, but they are ones that probably just the sort of general population people who aren't really horror fans or horror buffs, but who just, you know, dabble in it occasionally um, and, and probably, you know, know all my top five films um, might not know these or might vaguely have heard of them, but not have seen them or whatever. So that that's kind of the, the criteria I was thinking of there when i when i put together my list i don't know if you were i bet i know your number one i'm not going to say anything but i i feel like i know you well enough to know and your sensibilities what your number one pick is but i'm not going to say anything um i don't know my my number one pick here might actually surprise you we'll see we'll see number five what's your number five so i i took a little different of a direction um Mine, most people probably do know. I kept it fairly mainstream. I'm like so into film and have been sort of into this world of film analysis for so long, you know, since I went to school for it, that I kind of, I, I'm at a point where I really don't even know what is obscure anymore. So I tried to keep it somewhat mainstream. So I think most people will have heard of most of these. Uh, but I just think they might not be looked at as horror films necessarily. So things that I think are worth a watch if you're looking for a horror film that you wouldn't necessarily equate as a horror film right off the get-go. So number five is a very popular movie. Um, it's you consider Some people might consider it one of the best films of all time, but I just don't think that they would consider it a horror film. And that is Rear Window by Alfred Hitchcock, 1954, uh, which to me is his best film. It is amazing for one of the main reasons that we we actually talked about in a sidebar conversation earlier before we started recording, which was the horror of having something taken away from you that physically handicaps you, uh, which is the situation the main character is dealing with in the story. So he's sort of this adventure kind of guy um, who's it's played by Jimmy Stewart, who's incredible, of course, and he's broken his leg and he's in a wheelchair and he cannot leave his apartment. And he has believes he's seen a murder or something through his binoculars. He starts spying on his, on his neighbors in this apartment complex and he's trying to solve this murder. And the whole film is shot from the apartment from his point of view or the character's point of view because you know the other characters come into it as well but it's the camera doesn't leave the apartment and that is so groundbreaking for 1954 and amazing that he alfred hitchcock uh, again an amazing auteur could bring so much suspense and power into one point of view 
uh, a, a close contender for this one, I, I did want to include a Hitchcock film, was going to be Rope, which was done in one continuous shot. There are cuts in it uh, because they didn't have enough film to do it in one shot, but it's one shot um, about a couple of guys who do uh, like a, a kill just for the fun of it. And, and it, everything takes place in their apartment and they have friends over and they're trying to hide the body. And it's just, it's really, really insane kind of film. Uh, and that was groundbreaking as well. But I had to stick with Rear Window. If you want to be scared in a kind of a suspenseful kind of way, I think that's the that's the that's the Alfred Hitchcock film to watch, in my opinion. I think it's his number one. Interesting choice. Very good movie. Um, and yeah, I it's one of those ones that I wouldn't have thought of first and foremost as a horror film, but I can definitely see it. My number five is. Cabin in the Woods, 2012. Oh, that's that's a great modern one, yeah. Yeah. Directed by Drew Goddard, and of course, Joss Whedon co-wrote it with him and also was the producer on it, so there's a Whedon influence as well. And that's one I've been meaning to rewatch because I haven't watched it in a while, but um, I think this is the best of the horror films that are semi-satirical and meta which is almost like its own subgenre of horror films where it's like you're combining some actual horror with these satirical and even humorous angles and also doing like a meta commentary on the horror genre itself. And I think this movie to me does that the best balances those different things, the best of any movie that's tried. I do personally I think it is far superior to Scream. It's a very different movie, but it has, again, that that meta and, and somewhat satirical element to it. Um, I think Cabin in the Woods is is superior to Scream. I personally think that... I agree. That, that I, Scream, I definitely agree. I think that Scream is very overrated. I don't think it's Wes Craven's uh, best work at all. Um, and I don't think I'm, I'm as much of a Wes Craven fan as you are, but... Um, anyway, Cabin in the Woods, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And especially the first time you watch it, you don't see where it's going. I'll just leave yeah. it at that. I, I don't want to spoil the, too much of the plot. <laughs> if any listener hasn't seen it yet and needs to go check it out, I'm, I'm not going to get into much of the details, but um, you, you're not going to see where it's going, I don't think. All right. I think that's a great, great number five. Yeah. And while it, while it had a cult following ever since it came out, it's one that, again, the mainstream non-horror buff types may not really be aware of. So, um, what's your next pick for underappreciated horror film? I believe it's the only remake on any of my lists or anything like that. Uh, I'm going with the 1982, the thing, John Carpenter, another, another appearance by John Carpenter. Good choice. Uh, yep. Written by Bill Lancaster. Uh, it's based on the pretty popular who goes there, uh, novella. Uh, titled who who goes there uh, by John Campbell Jr. in 1938. I think it captures the novella. I left the novella off my list. I was going to put who goes there on one of my other lists, but I didn't because the film captures it so well. And I think it does a better job than the 1951 black and white film, the thing from another world, which also takes its inspiration from the novella. It is, it kind of goes against some of the conventions we were talking about earlier about how less is more. Um, this is, this is one of the films on my list that shows everything. Uh, the thing was sort of famous for what John Carpenter said, bringing, bringing it out into the light. Um, they, it's all practical, but they, they shot them in a way that's so brilliant and so believable and so real 
that it just looks absolutely incredible. The the special effects they were able to pull off are great. And how I told you before that like androids kind of creep me out. The thing has that same sort of sensibility where you don't really know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. It can look like anything. It can be anything. Is somebody infected? Is this person not infected? That suspense that you don't know what's going on is really frightening to me. And one of the elements of horror that really gets to me. Yeah. And is present in one of my short stories for sure later that we'll talk about. But uh, that sense of dread and paranoia, that heightened sense of paranoia, I just, uh, the thing captures it wonderfully so i love that movie it's it's one of my favorite movies but uh i it probably should have nudged something out from being on the list but i already had a carpenter film in my top five so uh, i i had to (laughs) move this one down to number four but there you go yeah yeah well the thing would be one of my honorable mentions for this category for sure and um yeah i agree with that completely it's a it's a masterpiece not only of of ominous building suspense yeah. and like just this bleak atmosphere feel to it, but then you add the paranoia in on top a of sense it. Sense of doom, you know. Just even even in the end, it's just you have this sense of doom. Yeah, yeah, just nihilism in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, like a just this this unspoken undercurrent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, my my number four is. My favorite Wes Craven movie, not one of his best loved films, but it is for me. And it's the only Wes Craven film that I really love. There's a few others that I like, but this is the only one that I really love. And it is The Serpent <laughs> it's and the Rainbow. It's so good. Yes. Um, yeah. 1988. Yeah. Bill Pullman. Uh, not, I think, right around the same time he was Lone Star, <laughs> give or take a year. Um, and it, is I think very underrated as a horror film. Um, It there's, there's a bunch of other Wes Craven films that often get, you know, much more love from horror buffs. But I think this, maybe it's because this is the one he did. That's the most in line with what I really like in a horror movie. Psychological terror. Yeah. 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 So for those who haven't seen it, I'll just say that it is, it is a zombie film that's unlike every other zombie film around because it deals with the actual kind of Haitian Caribbean original mythology and, you know, how much of that is, is real and all these sorts of things. And yeah, anyway, big, big fan. I, I think that movie deserves a lot more love. I'll give you a little hint. There's a reason it's not on my top five films. All right. So we might hear, we might hear more about this later. Okay. (laughs) okay all right uh my number three is the 1981 sam raimi classic evil dead okay uh he was the director and writer of it and this introduced like bruce campbell to the horror scene as the character ash who's like my favorite supernatural horror hero just the idea of like you know, and later in the sequels, he's got like a chainsaw arm, like he gets attached to his arm where he goes, kills demons and things like that's just a great hero. Uh, if, if I ever got another dog, I would name him Ash. Like, I love the character that much. Yeah, it was made for under half a million dollars. You know, it was made for like four hundred thousand um, dollars. And it has a lot of that stuff that you've talked about, which is like a real filmmaking, like for a steady cam, They like mounted 
a camera to a board <laughs> and two guys would just run around the woods with it because the the demon one of the demons you just don't see it's like a force in the woods and it's all done through point of view shot which is chasing the characters so again it, it's got that grainy sort of gritty feel to it uh and it's it's pretty terrifying if you watch it but it's also a little bit slapstickish not not as much as the sequels are but it's it's definitely underappreciated donnie darko the film which is kind of a cult classic now that's one of the that's the film that they go watch in the film <laughs> uh, there's a there's a scene where jake gyllenhaal uh, his character is is in the theater and they're the only ones in the theater him and his girlfriend and, and that's what's playing sort of as homage to the evil dead but it influenced a lot of people i mean now sam raimi's out there doing spider-man and everything else and he's big time but it's interesting to know a lot of these guys started in this genre where you can kind of do a lot with a little and i think evil dead's a great example of that and i think it's a good movie yeah that's one i i need to go rewatch because i think i think i saw it and I wasn't quite prepared to appreciate it. Um, I actually didn't see the evil dead series in order. I saw army of darkness first when it came out. <laughs> that's now that's and, just comedy. Yeah, yeah. And, and I loved it. I loved it. I, I yes, it's, and, it's hilarious. And, and it's then great. I went back and I, and I watched, you know, the, the, the prequels to it. And, and I, and I think I, I don't know. I don't know. They it didn't quite work for me at the time. I'm talking like to, Give it yeah, another I'm talking, chance. I'm talking 20 years ago, so you know my my tastes have become more sophisticated. But but I think I think probably what threw me for a loop was I ex- I was expecting it to just be like you know Army of Darkness prequels, and it wasn't. And I think that kind of threw me for a loop, yeah. and I and I didn't quite know how to take it. So um, yeah. I'll have to go I'll have to go take another look at that because it's probably been 20. I think I've seen Evil Dead two more recently. But I don't, which is sort of a evil dead two is like half remake, half sequel. It's really weird. They, in the first half of evil dead two, they basically redo, they basically reshot and retell the first evil dead film. And then they go on to explain more of it and more of it. And that's where ash is more developed further. And I like evil dead two also, but evil dead is where it started. And it has that more, uh, ser- like they were trying to make a horror movie when they went out and did evil dead, when they did the sequels, they were trying to add a bunch of elements in there, uh, which they did successfully, I think. Um, and it's a fun series, but uh, evil dead is actually scary. Okay. I'll definitely have to go take another look at that. Cause it's probably been 20 years at this point. It's weird when you start getting, getting to be old and things you're like, Oh yeah, it was recently. And you're like, shit, that was 20 years ago. You know? Ugh. All right. Well, <laughs> my number two in this category is probably, what you were guessing would be my number one, I think. Uh, and that is... Then it's going to be the same as my number two as well, I bet. Prince of Darkness? No, no, we're different. We're off. Ooh. We're different. Yep. Okay, yeah. Same director. Well, <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, there's there's a bunch of Carpenter films I could easily put on yeah. all these lists. But um, Prince of Darkness, 1987, is, in my opinion, the most underrated Carpenter film. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not going to say it's his best, but most of his better films have a much bigger following proportionately, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I feel like Prince of Darkness is a better horror film than it gets credit for being even from most Carpenter fans. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think it is really good. Maybe one of the best movies ever at just establishing and building 
eerie, ominous, bleak atmosphere. Yeah. It is just so good at that with all the techniques that he uses, soundtrack, everything, you know, the, 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 the slow building, uh, long, long shots and, and, and how he does it with like the, the homeless people just showing up and standing <laughs> yeah. creepily outside the old church. Very bleak. And this, yeah. And the setting, it's this like postmodern urban shithole sort of setting, you know, it could be any, any, uh, bad part of town in any city. Um, and you know, it's of course shot in LA or whatever, but it could be almost anywhere that it, that's got like a cruddy area, kind of post-industrial look to it. And don't really get very many answers. All these different uh, increasingly creepy things happen and the the protagonists of the film get trapped in a small claustrophobic location mm-hmm. and they can't escape, which is, you know, a classic horror technique and it's done very well, I think, in Prince of Darkness. So yeah, I'd say any anybody who hasn't seen it, if you're a horror fan, you need to watch Prince of Darkness. Man, that's a strong pick. I'm a little jealous because that I do think that that's so underappreciated. I agree, hundred percent. I I picked a a more known Carpenter film for for my number two little film that's based on a 1963 short story by Ray Nelson called Eight O'clock in the Morning, and that's the 1988 They Live. Uh, oh yeah, which I think is one of the most underrated movies out there. I think it it's the most overtly political of carpenter's movies i think he's like it's you really know that he's trying to make some statements in it and i think it works well i think he pulls it off because he doesn't sacrifice the story in doing that it's still just a good movie and uh it's got a it's got a really good cast it's got rowdy roddy piper as our, as our hero who people from our generation you know what could be better than that and the very underrated keith david who was also in the thing he's a carpenter favorite uh, he was in Platoon, yep. The Quick and the Dead, Men at Work, Requiem for a Dream. I mean, if you if you just Wikipedia that guy's bibliography or his uh, filmography, it, it's uh, unbelievable. Oh, and when you add to it his voice credits, either as a narrator or in animated stuff or whatever, I mean, he's just got one of the best voices ever. Everyone always says like, oh, I would want Morgan Freeman to narrate the movie about my life. And I say, yeah, he's my second choice. My my first choice Keith to David, narrate a yeah. documentary is Keith David, if they're going to make a documentary about my life. Plus, he's the president in Rick and Morty. So, <laughs> I mean, how can you beat that? And I think he's in Armageddon, too. Isn't he like, he's the military guy or something. He's just, he's just a badass. Like, he's a badass yeah. in the thing. Like, he's just... Uh, and then the fight scene between him and Rowdy Roddy Piper, which is ridiculous and like goes on for like 10 minutes or something and they live is just great. But it's, it's yeah. about, you know, it's about seeing the world for what it really is. Really. When you look at the movie, it's about taking your blinders off, which they, they put sunglasses on in the movie. Right. To see what's really behind, behind the curtain. Yeah. Yeah. Probably only the matrix and the red pill is, yeah. A better known metaphor than the sunglasses of they live. And this is better. <laughs> yeah. And it's about being yeah. woke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In in the true sense of the word. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. One of my favorite Carpenter movies. I actually don't normally think of it first and foremost as a horror movie, even though obviously it is, but like so many of Carpenter's films, it's, it's genre blending. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's everyone's subjective opinion. Like which movie is more of a horror movie versus more of a, a sci-fi movie or a, or a, a social commentary satirical movie or whatever. Yeah. But definitely, 
definitely a, a great movie, regardless of of how you parse its voodoo blend of of different genres and and different elements yeah my number one also when we get there it you might have the same kind of feeling about it that it doesn't necessarily belong well we'll go go ahead and drop it well for one other thing i wanted to say about they live is uh nelson who penned the penned the story he was really close friends with uh philip k dick who is one of my favorite he's like i have three favorite authors that i always say of all time and that's philip k dick uh kafka and Cormac McCarthy. Those are my three favorite authors. And just the fact that they had a close relationship, you can really see the sensibility between this story and a lot of Dick's work. Yeah. You know, I've, of those three, Philip K. Dick is the only one. I don't think I've ever read anything by him. No, just a a master of the pulp genre, especially in science fiction. And just, and he's got some, some big work. That's pretty, pretty impressive. Like Valis. And he did a lot of his stuff's been adapted for film. Uh, Total Total Recall, Blade Runner, which was um, Blade Runner was a do Android's dream, dream of electric sheep. Total Recall, I think was, we can remember it for you. Wholesale uh, scanner darkly, uh, just too many to list. Like he's a, a favorite, a minority report based on a, a short story. Just a lot of really, uh, really creative science fiction work. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those authors, like I have every reason to believe I would probably love him. You would, you would. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, just from what I know about him. And again, having seen all those, all those films you've listed off and probably others as well that are, you know, adaptations of his work. So yeah, it's just one of those things, you know, like that classic um, Seinfeld Twilight Zone episode, time enough to read. Yeah. Oh yeah. Never have time. I've, I've still, no matter how much I, I read fiction and nonfiction, I still always have like 800 books that I really want to read and just can't get to. Cause that's the one with Burgess Meredith, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the the upside of nuclear apocalypse, if you make it, is finally time enough to read, right? Yeah. So, 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 what is your number one underappreciated horror film? All right, my number one. I'm going out of the box here um, of film per se, but I think I think it's I can justify it. Mine is going to be the 1990 entire first season of Twin Peaks, the mini, the, the series, the television series. Uh, and this was done by David Lynch and Mark Frost. David Lynch is like the film version of Kafka. I mean, the same sensibilities are there, very dreamlike. Um, this is horrifying. This is a horrifying story. It, if you look at the actual subject matter and what they're talking about, it's gut wrenching and, but they do it in such a way that there's humor in there, supernatural elements in there, a lot of mystery. It's like a soap opera on steroids. And it's just got this dreamlike quality. That's that could only be done with those two together. Mark Frost was a writer for Hill street blues, which is, that was an early eighties, like crime drama. And it was the first, like first, like crime drama, TV show to be like gritty and kind of real. And then he went on to work on Northern Exposure. But he kind of like, I think his sensibilities like reigned Lynch in from like going total like eraser head and, and all the like too abstract. So it's, it's just a good marriage. And I think it made for, for uh, just a really scary, fun, interesting thing. It's, it's one of my favorite things like, you know, ever put down on film is the first season of Twin Peaks and, and most of the second season. Hmm. I remember. When I first saw it, a friend of mine named David, when I was a kid, 
we were in high school and he was like, Oh man, you got to watch twin peaks. So he dropped the pilot on me and it, it was just, there was this shitty little section. It was just one row of movies in, I think it was, it was block, I can't remember if it was still called arrows. It might, it was, I think it was blockbuster by this point, but it was called cult classics. And I would have to call around or even drive to the various blockbusters in like the Northern Virginia area <laughs> to piece together the entire series. I think it's eight, eight hours and one blockbuster wouldn't have all of them or they would all be rented or whatever. So it, it was like a journey. It was like this pilgrimage I had to make <laughs> to complete the entire first season to watch it. And I got so addicted, but it's scary, creepy, disturbing, um, and it's nothing you could do on network TV today. Nothing. There's just no way you could, some of the content in there would ever make it scary as hell. And just think it's super creative. That's my number one overlooked pick. I will definitely have to check that out because I have never actually sat down and watched Twin Peaks. It's one of those things like it was kind of around, you know, when you're growing up in the nineties and yeah. I kind of was vaguely aware that there was some sort of weird a show that a lot of people were really into, but like for whatever reason, when it was still on TV and then even after the fact, it's just something I've, I've never actually sat and watched. It's brilliant. And it's, it came out when I was in the seventh or eighth grade. So you were probably in the fifth or sixth grade or something like that, but I didn't watch it until, and I remember it being a thing even then, like people, what is this crazy thing people are watching this is so crazy and the log lady and all these zany characters that you hear about and then uh it wasn't until i was in high school that actually my friend was like you've never seen it you got to watch it and he was a film buff and uh i watched it and ever since then i've been a peaks freak i've just i've tried to try to turn as many people onto it as possible so uh if you ever get a chance the first season is probably hook you maybe you won't like it but i think it's got enough creepiness to get you hooked okay well, good. I'm, I'm glad I'm getting all sorts of, uh, you know, new stuff to check out in it or, or old things I haven't seen in forever to go check out again. Uh, so my number one underappreciated, unsung, lesser known horror flick is one you may not ex- have expected. But if you're familiar with it, you might understand why it is Exorcist 3, mm-hmm. 1990. This one actually directed by William Peter Blatty himself based on another Blatty novel called Legion. And it has relatively little to do with the original Exorcist, although it does deal with some of the same characters. But it's a, it's a very different sort of story. And I've never seen it. Exorcist 3 is, is definitely worth seeing. It stars um, George C. Scott. Oh, wow. And like I said, directed by Blatty, who based on his novel Legion, which I also sort of think of as an underappreciated horror horror novel. Uh, Everybody knows The Exorcist, but um, Legion is worth reading. And it it deals with a killer, a serial killer uh, called the Gemini Killer. And most of the movie takes place in kind of like the mental ward of a hospital. And it has supernatural elements as well. And it is really another one of these movies where a lot of it is just based on suspense and atmosphere and relatively little graphic stuff happens on screen, but it's talked about in different places. And, and 
it it really um it in a way makes it creepier when they're talking about these horrible things and not showing it and oh man i'm i'm blanking on let me real quick pull up um the actor who plays the gemini killer he's a he's a well-known character actor he played um a number of prominent roles he was Grima Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings. Oh, um, I'm blanking on his name. I'm gonna, I, I gotta, I gotta pull it up. He does a great job as this crazy serial killer. Brad Dorif is his name. Okay, yeah. The, the guy who played Grima Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings, and he also played one of the bad guys in Mississippi Burning, and he's been in a number of things. He's he's a really good character actor trying to think what else he's been he's just been in so many different things but um anyway exorcist three exorcist two is dog shit <laughs> everybody kind of knows that who knows anything about horror films or the exorcist franchise or whatever exorcist three is complete crap yeah sorry sorry exorcist two is complete crap. Two, yeah exorcist three is i think one of the biggest sleepers of a horror movie that even a lot of horror films, a lot of horror fans don't give enough love to or know enough about. And so I highly recommend it. I saw it again. Childhood has an influence. I saw it. It came out in 1990. I saw it on VHS at a friend's house, not long after it came out on VHS. And so I was give or take around 10, 11 years old. And this is, mostly a more cerebral horror movie than like a jump scare splatter guts sort of a a movie. And, and you would think that, you know, younger kids aren't supposed to get more atmospheric and cerebral horror and that sort of thing. But this, this one got me, this one creeped me out and I can remember um, it causing me some sleep, sleepless nights after I saw it for a while outstanding that's what you want (laughs) yeah yeah so you know maybe everyone's taste is subjective but uh i i think this is a excellent horror film that does not get enough respect great it sounds like we got some good picks with our with these might even be more interesting than our uh our top five of all time i think yeah a lot of those with a few exceptions a lot of those might be ones that people would have expected but yeah definitely these are you know more out of left field um and I'll just quickly run through my runners up for this category as well. Uh, Phantasm 1979 is a great weird atmospheric horror movie. One of those classics of late seventies, early eighties Zodiac directed by David Fincher, 2007, another one. I love the gate 1987, Steven Dorff. Um, the ninth gate 1999 Roman Polanski starring Johnny Depp, I think is very underrated. Event Horizon, 1997, is a sci-fi horror film starring Sam Neill that, uh, and Lawrence Fishburne that I think is very underrated. Yeah, very, that that uh, scared the crap out of me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's got a few flaws, but, but I, I think it's a very good horror film. Uh, Bone Tomahawk, 2015, starring Kurt Russell, is a Western horror film that I think is very good. Dead Heat, 1988. Dead Heat is a buddy cop sci-fi zombie horror comedy film starring Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo. <laughs> okay. So what the, what the hell, how can you get any better than that? If you want like cheesy, but still good eighties 
weird genre blending film like Dead Heat. It's currently on Amazon Prime streaming, so go check that out. More recent one, The Babadook, uh, 2014. Yeah. yeah. Ravenous, 1999, which I reviewed on a Dangerous History podcast episode a while ago. Um, the Thing also would be on my list there. And uh, Mothman, Prophe- Mothman Prophecies, 2002. Oh, with Richard um, Gere, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that one is, and again, it's another one of these. It's slow, but in a good way. And it marinates its uh, atmosphere and it doesn't give you answers. And yeah, it's creepy. Yeah. So those are some of my runners up for that category. All right. Outstanding. Well, um, you didn't have any runners up for that category. You didn't compile a list on that one. Um, I did. I, I kind of mentioned some of them. The one that I would mention and that I, I it was on my top five, but for, for various reasons, I took it off the top five overlooked uh, is the last man on earth from 1964 which again is based on Richard Matheson's I am legend. Oh yeah. That's the Vincent price, the one, Vincent right? price one, which is, right, it's, right. I think it's public domain. So I think you could just like watch it on YouTube. Um, it's, it predates night of the living dead. And if you watch it, you'll be like, Oh, like, so somebody was already thinking about this kind of stuff. Like it's uh, Vincent price. I think it's his best role and all and of all those kind of golden age of horror movies that he was in. But yeah, I think that's my, that's my honorable mention. I really love it. And I try to watch it around Halloween if I can, especially since I can just typically log on to YouTube and watch it. It's somebody's got it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. That's, that's one I haven't watched in a while. I'll have to check that one out again. Okay. So that is where we will leave it off for this episode. And the next episode, which will come out just within a day or two of this one, probably is going to be the second half of our conversation where we switch from films to fiction. So, I will talk to you soon.
hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level. And you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.